Good to have him back. Uh, the uh, the great David Birdsell, Mark Steen of the Austin W. Mark School of Public and International Affairs, We're talking about the great uh, Baruch College. Uh, and uh, David, I hope you are well since the last time we spoke. You had kind of an ominous look out that window in uh, Midtown Manhattan. Uh, where the streets have been, uh, well, rather desolate. Hopefully that's going to pick up somewhat with a phase two on Monday. But uh, nonetheless, uh, it has been uh, 112, 114 days uh, that we have, will never forget. No, we won't forget those days. And things have already begun to pick up substantially in Manhattan, Jay. Uh, we, we're seeing lots of people uh, getting carryout at uh, restaurants, drinks and food alike, and clustering around those restaurants, sometimes more than they should. But there are clearly a lot more people in the streets, uh, clearly a lot more uh, vehicle traffic, um, and the city is poised to come back even stronger on Monday. Hopefully, uh, let's keep the fingers crossed, get the official word from the governor on that today at his last uh, briefing. Let's get into the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, the ruling yesterday against President Trump's attempt to end uh, the Obama-era protection, protections uh, for some 650,000, David, young immigrants who were brought to this country illegally uh, as children. It was a split 5-4 in the decision in which uh, Chief Justice John Roberts sided uh, with the uh, high court's uh, liberals, and it means now the the eight-year-old, I believe, the eight-year-old deferred action for childhood arrivals, ladies and gentlemen, DACA, the program, remains providing protection from deportation authorization to work in this country. I think the biggest thing for me, oh, there's a couple here, and I'll start with the easy one, and that is the mindset. You know, you look back as far as the LGBT decision and whatnot, that 6-3. And listen, uh, I think it was well needed, but it's more about the mindset right now of SCOTUS. Uh, have they changed that course of thinking and what will be what will become in years ahead? Never saw this before as far as the Supreme Court and the liberal way of response here. Give me your assessment in that regard. Surprise to you? The DACA decision is not a great surprise surprise to me. The LBGTQ decision was more of a surprise given the size of the majority. I think here it's not so much a matter of the court swinging to liberal positions. They are swinging to more popular positions. We have come a long way in the United States on attitudes toward sexuality and toward uh, gay people, particularly since the Stonewall riots um, back in the 1960s. And a large majority of Americans favor rights protections, uh, including workplace protections for gay and lesbian workers and transgender workers. And we saw the Supreme Court take a decision which Supreme Courts, whether liberal or conservative, have been inclined to do over the centuries, uh, to follow popular opinion as well as defensible legal uh, legal precedent. Um, and what you saw in that decision uh, was the court making an argument that was really textualist in its approach, written by Neil Gorsuch, no less, where he was arguing on the letter of the law, literally, that you can't make a decision about somebody's sexuality without determining what their sex is. And so he said that that was protected. In the DACA decision, you have actually what is in many respects a conservative decision with regard to the law, that 
baked into any effort to change federal statute, including executive orders, is a process that demands that you justify why the change happens. So we do that because we don't want government to teeter from off to on, left to right, uh, at the drop of a hat or with the change of an election. We have processes in place that administrations need to follow. They can get there, but they have to follow their own administrative rules. And the Trump administration did not do that in the court's judgment in the case of DACA. They didn't assess the impact on those 650,000 young people. They did not look at alternatives to the legislation. They just simply wanted to rescind and rescind immediately. Um, so there were serious procedural errors, and that was why the court made the decision that it did. You know, I'm just kind of scratching my head somewhat because... You know, the first thing that came to my head besides the, you know, the kind of the switch of the mindset, as we mentioned, the liberal nature of it all and whatnot, uh, and the split decision here, and six to three, as, as you had mentioned, the LGBT decision. But I think the other thing that came to my head was a violation. Isn't it a violation, David Birdsell, regarding separation of powers? When you think about it, Congress, you know, has that right yet. You know, you go back to the days of the Obama era. And it was the president who who inserted that in himself without any major, uh, you know, as far as pushback. So I kind of look at it here as maybe that of separation of powers between the judicial and the executive branches. Do I have a case in that thinking? Well, there's a there's a very serious set of questions about the use of unilateral executive action. And this is not uh, the creation of Barack Obama or Donald Trump. If we go back to the founding of the republic, it was actually Andrew uh, Andrew Jackson, who was the first president to assert the right to issue an executive order and to act in the absence of legislative action preceding executive action. And it was a very rarely invoked privilege um, until the Reagan administration, and it's grown from Reagan uh, through George H.W. Bush to the present day, uh, with George W. Bush actually issuing more executive actions and signing statements uh, than any president at this point uh, in history. Uh, um, certainly more so than any of his predecessors. But the question is, what can a president do uh, unilaterally and what requires legislation? Clearly, a grand bargain on immigration has escaped uh, the last five presidents and the last five presidents have tried to do it. But now uh, we are relying and, and this is, is, is logical in a, in a polarized environment where Congress finds it increasingly difficult to pass legislation uh, that presidents take actions they feel to be necessary. In the case of DACA, uh, it was a very, very popular action at the time. It remains popular. Uh, these uh, 650,000 young people are all uh, thoroughly uh, models of what people should be doing. They're in college, they're employed, they're, they're uh, enlisted in the military, uh, and their, their records are, by definition, spotless. You can't have a criminal record and be a DACA recipient. So these are folks who are doing everything that you want to see young people doing, and most Americans feel that they should be given the right day in a country, the only country most of them have ever known, though they came here as infants or very young children. But again, that's all well and good, but to me, if you want to fix this issue, well then how how about put a new law in and that to me, uh, David Birdson, that's still, you know, as I said before, that falls to Congress. It's not to the president of the United States, nor is it that of the Supreme Courts. At least make it a new, underline that, new law and let it go before our congressional members. I, I don't see anything wrong with that aspect. I couldn't agree more. I mean, we need legislative action uh, because DACA is one small slice of the uh, migration picture in the United States, uh, and we need to address that whole picture. And we can't do so without legislative action. President Obama actually tried to uh, uh, 
add to DACA uh, with something called DAPA, which is Deferred Action for the Parent of Dreamers, because those folks are, of course, here almost by definition, they're the people who brought the young children over without papers themselves. And that was deemed to fly directly in the face of legislation. And this is the narrow window for executive action. Uh, if it's not clear where Congress has spoken, there is room for a president to act. In the case of the Deferred Action for Parents, it was clear that Congress had spoken and not provided a pathway to citizenship for people who themselves, as adults, freely chose to come across the border without the necessary documentation. So, in that, And that was struck down by the court. That, effort, that executive order was struck down and he was not able to enforce it. But DACA remained because there's a gray area. But as, as to the larger question, should there be a legislative remedy for the, the myriad migration-related questions that, that face this country? Absolutely there should. And it's shameful, and frankly, that Congress is going all the way back to the 1990s that failed to deal with this question. David Birdsell with us. I'm going to change gears a little bit here. Let's go into John Bolton with a book coming out Tuesday. Here's my biggest problem with the ex-National Security Advisor in John Bolton, David. You know what? Uh, you're going to write a memoir of this nature? Well, guess what? Get in front as far as deal with what you knew as far as what was going on in Ukraine. Uh, he did not. Uh, I got a big problem with that. Uh, he either dodged the testimony with the House or the Senate uh, to preserve his disclosures for this upcoming m memoir. But, you know, I got a big problem with that now. Uh, it does not uh, paint him in a pretty good light, in my opinion. Uh, let's get into the aspect of that first. Are you going to take this book seriously? Uh, you got an interview coming up on Sunday night at 9 with Martha Raddatz, as far as ABC is concerned. Give me your assessment of a very, <laughs> what could be, excuse me, a very disgruntled John Bolton here in this book coming out Tuesday. Well, John Bolton is really disgruntled, and he surely should have testified uh, in the impeachment hearing, both in the House and in the Senate. He declined to do so initially. Uh, he then said that he would do so if a subpoena were issued. The Republicans in the Senate quashed the subpoena, and because the majority gets to issue subpoenas, they would not issue a subpoena, and Bolton did not testify. That was a failure of will and courage on John Bolton's part. It was a failure of duty to exercise oversight on the Senate's part. And this is the second time I've had to use this word in this, uh, in this conversation, Jay, but it's shameful on the part of both parties. I will take seriously, however, what Bolton writes in the book as unfortunate as it is to have it come out only in this fashion and too late for the decisions that might have been made uh, that could conceivably have changed the uh, course of decision-making about the future of this presidency. Much of what he talks about has been uh, whispered and discussed in other venues. He has a great deal more specificity in that inside-the-room context, and it's of a piece with what we know from other sources about the Trump administration, about not precisely the politicization of foreign policy, but the subjugation of foreign policy goals to one and only one goal, uh, which is the benefit of Donald Trump, in this case electorally. But we know that he has said quite publicly, the president has asked for China's intervention into uh, American elections in favor of the Trump campaign. He's asked for Russian intervention in American elections in favor of the Trump campaign. So it should be no surprise that he continued saying those things in private. As horrifying as it might be, and I think the most horrifying things are the willingness to trade the U.S.'s historical defense of human rights. And I'm thinking of cases like the concentration camps in northwestern China for Uyghurs, and I'm thinking about the Hong Kong protests for short-term 
one political advantages for one president. Listen, I, I think John Bolton is an absolute disgrace uh, for doing this. Uh, the comments regarding President Xi of China and the farmers buying up the agricultural goods, the comments regarding Vladimir Putin outfoxing uh, the president of the United States. You know, listen, you have a civil duty as far as I'm concerned, and Bolton had one, and he could have done it by testifying before Congress, and he didn't do that. And I look upon that as a major uh, type of situation for myself uh, to have a viewpoint the way I do regarding John Bolton. An absolute disgrace, the disgruntled down the line, likes of John Kelly and company and everyone else, Masterson, you name it. Listen, uh, this is just another guy who has a beef with Donald Trump, and guess what? I'm going to profit off it. I think it makes him look very small. Very small. And I have lost, if I had any respect, as far as John Bolton was concerned. I agree. That's a shameful performance. Uh, it doesn't necessarily make what he says untrue, but it should have been done in a different way. And it's an irony uh, that he is criticizing a president for his failure to serve uh, when his book is indeed also an embodiment of the failure to serve. I'll be interested to see if the Congress now does subpoena his testimony, obviously no longer in the context of an ongoing uh, impeachment investigation. Uh, but but will they try to get him under oath to testify to these things? Uh, and will the Republicans in the Senate, if that moves to the Senate, uh, be willing to exercise their subpoena power now that they know what the testimony is likely to look like? Good bird cell with us. Let's move to some COVID stuff. Tulsa on Saturday. Good move. Juneteenth today with a switchover. Not thrilled. Not thrilled with the upticks I'm seeing as far as the virus, David, in 22 states right now. Uh, not thrilled at all. We're not even talking a second wave. This is wave one here we're seeing and it's carelessness a lot of it is uh i can't uh, i can't embrace ron desantis and saying you know what we've got a lot of testing going on here no when i see hospitalization rates elevated when i see icu admission uh rates elevated that's a signal to me about not complying here so uh, i'm worried about what happens in tulsa oklahoma on saturday with a couple of hundred thousand people uh in what will be kind of a fairground type atmosphere in the midwest uh, i am concerned i'm concerned also also, I have not seen Fauci and Burks. What has happened to the task force, for crying out loud? Where is Mike Pence leading the way? And could somebody please wear a mask? I am concerned the numbers are real. Give me your take. The numbers are absolutely real. The task force still exists on paper, but the administration seems to be doing its level best to try to hide it and hide its work. We've seen uh, Vice President Pence most recently encouraging governors to blame the spike in new cases of the virus simply on the testing regime, which is obviously untrue or, as you point out, the hospitalizations wouldn't be going up. Um, and what we're seeing in this extended first wave is precisely what epidemiologists told us would happen, uh, that it's first going to strike in large major population centers, uh, and then it's going to spread through smaller population centers, and that's what we're seeing. And the notion that you would gather uh, 20, 40, 60,000 people uh, in Tulsa indoors, almost certainly lightly, if at all, mass, uh, and rely on hand sanitizers to prevent what could be the single largest hot spot that we have seen yet in this country is just simply mind-boggling. The failures of planning, the failures of communication here are legion and terrifying. We know that mask wearing is a good way to protect not yourself, but the people around you. And since we don't know necessarily that we have, that we're infected until we get sick, and we know for a certainty that people are actually at their most contagious in the days immediately prior to manifesting their first symptoms that they have indeed been infected with COVID-19, um, wearing a mask is simply responsibility and respect for other people. But it's been politicized. 
And the president bears substantial responsibility here uh, for talking about the mask simply as a way to indicate distaste for Donald Trump. And so, of course, all of the uh, Trump supporters hearing that are going to be much less likely to wear a mask because they, of course, support the president. Uh, so this is this is a horrifying situation, and it is going to get much worse before it gets better. Um, out of the gate, many epidemiologists said that Florida was going to be one of the hardest hit states in the country. And, of course, they have a disproportionate number of senior citizens many of them living in congregate communities, uh, which is just a perfect Petri dish for transport, uh, tra transmitting uh, this virus and seeing people come down with potentially deadly cases of COVID-19. We are still very much at the early phases uh, of this horrifying pandemic. David, do you see the governor, uh, as far as uh, Andrew Cuomo, kind of putting the clamps as far as those who are traveling into the Empire State to self-quarantine for a couple of weeks? Remember, it was a little payback from the beginning when the shoe was on the opposite there. Uh, what about that aspect as far as self-quarantining if you're traveling in? I think it's entirely possible that he will pull that trigger despite having argued that other, uh, to other governors, notably Gina Raimondo of Rhode Island, uh, when she first, uh, she was actually the first governor to impose a uh, an interstate quarantine uh, for people coming from New York and Massachusetts into, into Rhode Island. She actually had troopers stopping uh, New York and Massachusetts license plates at the border and insisting that people quarantine or turning them back in the direction they were just coming from. But I, I wouldn't be surprised if he does that. There is a lot of traffic back and forth between New York and Florida, um, and it could well prompt a series of spikes. Uh, so. One of the questions here is going to be come down to uh, what transit looks like between states that have few or no uh, controls over how people distance, associate, mask wear, et cetera, uh, and those that do. And what we're seeing is a very clear pattern right now. Those that were early uh, sites of infection uh, typically responded fairly aggressively, not in all cases, but in most cases, uh, New York, California, Washington State, et cetera. Uh, and those rates in those states are going way down. Uh, so we know that some of these containment strategies work. Uh, and if everybody were willing to wear a mask, if everybody were willing to uh, socially distance, we could open the, the economy back up uh, and do so in a careful fashion. But some of the things we, were, we had hoped to rely on, contact tracing, for example, uh, the rates of willing cooperation with contact tracing are barely above 50 percent. People don't want to interact with the healthcare system. Uh, and if we don't have those tools, all of this is going to take a lot longer, be a lot more painful, and a lot more deadly. Listen, the, the virus isn't eradicating. Just because we're opening up, I've been stating this for, for weeks, months. My goodness. Uh, we got to comply here. We must comply as far as, you know, wearing it out in public and whatnot. Last one. Biden's campaign, the VP pick, Amy Klobuchar out, said the right thing. Woman of color, no question. Uh, listen, uh, I've said all along, in the beginning, you know it, I, I picked Kamala Harris as the nominee. Uh, maybe she went out too soon. Who knows? I thought she could have been a great uh, a, a great nominee. I still think she'll be the VP pick here. It could be her. I like Congresswoman Demings down in Florida. Uh, long shot to me would be Stacey Abrams there in Georgia. Uh, give me the Klobuchar effect from this morning, bowing out. And who do you think would be Joe Biden's pick? I, I think it, uh, I, well, of course, it's always difficult predict a personal decision of this sort, but I, I think you've got the final three uh, with um, Val Demings of Florida. Uh, she's a 
appealing in a number of ways. She's not held an administrative post that would that gives her a record, as, as Kamala Harris has, uh, that can be impugned with regard to behavior as attorney general in California. I mean, right or wrong, she has a record there. And many people think that it was a record of over-aggressive prosecution. That's a weakness. And of course, she's from California, uh, so she doesn't necessarily give an extra state appeal. Uh, Demings, former police officer herself, has uh, is, is a Floridian. Uh, Florida is, of course, a battleground state, although right now Biden is comfortably up in Florida. Uh, but having a uh, native daughter uh, may well assist with, with the effort in that absolutely crucial swing state. Stacey Abrams is a very appealing candidate. She ran a terrific campaign uh, against now Governor Kemp uh, uh, in, in the last cycle. Uh, the question is really whether she has the experience. She has no national level experience of any sort, but a very composed, very effective voice on the campaign trail uh, and more effective, frankly, than uh, than Kamala Harris has been. Uh, but my guess is is that it comes down to one of those three. And and we'll see where that comes out on. Uh, well, soon, because I, I do expect that given given how difficult it has been for the Biden campaign to make news. Uh, they're going to try to find a, a light news week over the summertime, well before the convention, uh, to declare uh, the vice presidential pick and get that person as much out in, uh, in circulation as you can be these days, uh, any of us in circulation. No question. A lot on the plate, uh, David. Uh, we'll talk next time. Look forward to it. You stay well safe in the big city, all right? You too, Jay.